Okay, there we go. I hear myself. Good morning, everybody. If you all don't mind, if you can turn to John chapter 2 at verse 23. And uh, while you get there, we're going to do a little bit of a... uh, For anybody who might be just now joining us this morning, a little bit of some backfiller. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, fairly slowly, but that's deliberate in case you didn't notice because it's almost through May and we're just now ending chapter two. So buckle up. Uh, And the last couple weeks we've been talking about things having to do with temple and Jesus going into the temple and uh, flipping some tables and putting together some reeds and smacking some folks with them. Uh, And then we talk about some of the last week. uh, I was on a voyage to Texas. So Scott, thank you very much for filling in and thank you very much to Riley and Tisha for singing this morning. Uh, uh, but last week, I know that Jimmy was talking about uh, the broader themes of temple that are going to come up throughout, particularly John and especially throughout the rest of the New Testament when you look for them. They're pretty abundant. And so uh, this morning, we're going to end out the last couple chapters, or the last couple verses of this particular chapter, and it's still Passover. So Jesus went to Jerusalem a handful of times throughout his ministry, usually around Passover time. He spent the rest of his time wandering around the smaller communities outside, but he never went very far away from Jerusalem because uh, they were there for the festivals, especially Passover. And Passover um, is one particular day of a week-long festival. So there are two festivals that are back-to-back. They celebrate their week-long festival, and that festival was to help them commemorate all of the things that God did throughout the Exodus story. And then the Passover is when the the Spirit, or um, it's a really cool edgy name in some translations of the Bible, the Destroyer which is kind of cool, passes over uh, the people of Israel. And yet that spirit still destroyed the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians and the firstborn of all the livestock even. So Passover is that specific moment. The other festival for the week leading up into that was to commemorate all of those miracles. And that's, uh, he's in the city around this particular time. And that's where this verse picks up. It says, now, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness to him about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus is going around doing his normal ministry. It doesn't say specifically that he's preaching. There's a good chance that he is. Uh, But it does clearly tell us that he's going around doing his usual signs, which were healings and oftentimes exorcisms of spirits that were plaguing people uh, for an extended period of time. And this usually garnered him a bit of a crowd. And that's what's happening here. There are crowds gathering around. And this is all throughout John. We've been telling you that, hey, uh, John is finding very clear ways to tell you without just explicitly telling you in, in like plain black and white English, Jesus is God, but in ways that Jews would have very clearly picked up on, oh, this is God. This is another one of those. Because let's keep in mind that Like I just said, this is a festival to commemorate God doing miraculous works in Egypt. And he spends the entire week going to the poor, lonely, and down and out people. Sorry, I kind of messed with my microphone there. My my glasses are a little smudgy. Uh, 
going to the down and out people, which would have been like Israel at the time that they were in slavery. And he's performing miracles among them the entire week, kind of like God did. And the whole thing ends in Passover where God liberates his people. And eventually there will be a Passover where Jesus winds up liberating God's people. So this is John just smacking you in the face with symbolism saying, hey, this is God. So what, what purpose do these strange little verses that just sort of tail end these stories about a wedding and Jesus cleansing the temple and all of a sudden we get these two little random verses before he goes and talks to a Pharisee in the middle of the night? They seem kind of odd and out of place. Well, for one thing, it's more testimony about who Jesus is. He's acting like and behaving like and having the same character as God. So this is John saying, hint, hint, he's God. So that's one function that they serve. But another thing that's happening here, it's very clear from the second verse, is, is it's not just Jesus doing miracles and behaving like God did during the Passover. There's something else about Jesus here that's an awful lot like God. And it's that second bit there where he says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to the crowd because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is another way of John saying, hey, this is God. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see God distinctly having the ability to look directly into the soul of a person. So here's some examples in Psalm 44 at verse 21. It said, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Over in Psalm 139, there are a few verses there. Starting at verse 1. It says, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. So in this moment, not only is Jesus acting like God in his signs and his wonders, he seems to have the ability to look at the people, the crowds gathering around him, and just know them very well and very intimately, and to know what's happening inside of them. And there will be a few more times throughout John where Jesus has a mixed reaction to the crowds approaching him. Probably the most famous one is in John 6, and and we'll get there and elaborate more on that. But this isn't the only time throughout the Gospel of John where crowds gather around him, and he behaves a little strangely and kind of standoffishly. And I'm certain because it says that many believed in his name that there are people there who are genuinely following him now. Because, you know, whenever we see all like the, the 1960s, like, Jesus stuff... 
where some famous actor played Jesus and he's just kind of always walking around like this and he just had the disciples and that's it. That's the wrong picture. Like there was usually a whole posse surrounding Jesus and they didn't have to leave their town because he was going in a circuit. So the apostles were always with him and a handful of ladies like Mary Magdalene and some other folks like that. And ironically enough, the wife of one of Herod's like top people. So the Herod, the guy who hated him was unknowingly funding his entire ministry because this woman was giving him gobs of money. Uh, he, uh, he would go from town to town and he would have like a little posse that would take care of him and the disciples in each and every town. They had friends. So he's got a whole crowd of people around him and several of them are probably wholeheartedly believing in him and his name. And there are probably a handful that are kind of just here for the show. There's a mixture of people here. And the only commentary we get was he just, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. And this sounds so much like the Old Testament, especially some of those Psalms. Even if you read the ones where David is grieving and he talks about God knowing his heart, it sounds an awful lot like David is saying things, you know, like, I'm happy um, that you're going to forgive me because you know what's happening in here, but you still forgive me. This, it sounds so much like Psalms, like half the Psalms. This is very clearly God. And it can get kind of strange and uncomfortable, uh, you know, because this is uh, the land of liberty. And my, you know, my my house is my castle and people are very into privacy and this and that. You know, everybody gets outraged about your data mining. And we have strange constitutional interpretations all about privacy and this and that. And it feels a little weird and big brothery and uncomfortable uh, to Western folk whenever we think that there's somebody there who just always knows our thoughts and always knows us. In in some debates, there's a he's he's a, he was a fantastic orator in his lifetime, and he was a prolific writer and a really great thinker. But he was very, very um, just outwardly. He I wouldn't say hateful, but he was just very outwardly critical and openly critical of particularly Christianity. He was a, he was a writer named Christopher Hitchens, and that was one of his biggest things. That there's like this cosmic big brother. You never have a lonely moment. He's like a doting mother that just never leaves you alone and never lets you out of the house. And so it's it's very strange to feel that God always sees us, always knows us, and I'm and it's. <sighs> When in all reality, it seems like this should be the ultimate bit of comfort. Because, I mean, if there's God, let's think about this reasonably here. Hey, he, he's God. He's all-powerful. And God can't help but know what's in his creation if he's truly all-powerful. And what... Good reason would he have to do so lovingly and benevolently, other than just he opt he opts to be loving and chooses to be loving. And strangely enough, if you want to feel like God is some sort of big brother, he doesn't do an awful lot to stop you whenever you're not behaving the way he doesn't want you to. You're free to just go and, and do things. Whatever you'd like. You can go do it. But yet he still knows you very well, very deeply, and very intimately. 
And these are the same words we hear about Jesus here. And that's both kind of unnerving, but all at the same time should be the ultimate source of comfort. Because here's the thing I can't help but notice. If you've been here for a while, or if you've been around church a lot in your life, you're going to know that even though Jesus apparently knows everything, even about some of these people in the crowd who might not be wholeheartedly following him, he still opts to die anyways for them. Even knowing every little thing about them, he still chooses to go and die. And sometimes that doesn't sink in. When you're around this stuff and you see the glowing interpretations of Jesus always walking around like this, not really behaving like a real human being and just kind of slightly levitating, always wearing a purple sash. It's hard to really feel uh, an intimate humanity there. And sometimes whenever we go into our day-to-day lives, we just get busy. We just get very busy. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're doing good things. You're going to work. You're taking care of your family. You're trying to do a good job. There's nothing wrong with just being a person and going about your life. You're not sinning in any way doing that. It's just sometimes the carnal can get so distracting and it's hard To really feel that deep, deep intimacy at all times. And to really understand that Jesus knows you. And then whenever you get busy and you get distracted, and sometimes it's whenever you're doing perfectly good, normal, reasonable things that God will bless and wants you to do, you can just get so busy, you just lose track of things. And when you lose track of things, that's whenever you tend to mess up. And ever since the beginning, our disposition as people, whenever we mess up, and you can even see it in like little children, but you can even see it in Genesis. Whenever we mess up, our first instinct is to like go run and hide. That's what we do. You know, it's like whenever I was a kid and I broke something, I would scurry off and hide. And it's like, well, you don't, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what happened here. My child was in here playing. I heard a bang and then a, and then my parents came in, something was broken. And they're like, did you do this? And you're just like hiding in the corner behind the recliner going like, no, I don't know who did that, but they're very fast. (laughs) We see this in Adam and Eve, like they, when they mess up, their first instinct was to cover themselves up, and then they went and hid whenever God went to look for them. That's their very first instinct. That's our very first instinct as small children, and even whenever we screw up as adults, sometimes whenever you mess up at work, your first instinct is like, is this really a big enough deal that I need to go tell my boss? Do I need to go tell somebody about this? Can I just fix this without telling anybody? Like, that's just our first thing. It's to cower and to back up. And whether that's like a sin thing or that's just a nature thing, because, you know, if something dangerous is happening, moving backward is not always a bad idea. So whether it's just like a survival instinct thing, that's just what we do. And it's the exact wrong thing to do. To back up. To cower. Because whenever we back up and we cower, we can slowly start to desensitize ourselves to the things that we're doing. 
and normal, reasonable people who've been faithfully following for years and years and years and years suddenly can find themselves doing things they never thought they would be doing and, and grieving the Spirit, because not because they don't love God, but because they were cowering and backing away from Him very slowly, incrementally, over a process of months, maybe even years. And finally, you just find yourself at a place where you've become so desensitized to this particular thing, now all of a sudden you're just, you don't even know what you're doing anymore. But I can't help but try to draw our, our attention to the fact that the whole Jesus got really worked up about the temple, like we've been talking about for a few weeks. And if you look at the whole Bible, it seems like God keeps trying to orchestrate an entire way for his people to be near him. Whenever we screwed things up in the garden, we recoiled from him. We hid from him. And then he comes and then he gives us a covenant via Abraham saying, okay, you're going to be my people, which is kind of vague. But then whenever they become his people and then they get distracted because of life and now they're in bondage, he says, okay, now I'm going to liberate you and I'm going to come bring you out into the wilderness and it's just going to be me and you and I'm going to make a contract with you all. And then whenever we, whenever people felt like confused, we didn't know what was going on. We recoiled from him again and we made an idol and then he brought us back anyways and he gave us the tabernacle so his presence could always be with us and move around with us and we could always commune with him and then he gave like the formal temple structure and he gave his people like a solid bit of land and he says keep coming to the temple keep coming into my presence keep doing these things and then whenever the temple was obliterated he gave them a chance to rebuild it and then whenever that was no longer sufficient he actually decides okay I want to permanently be near my people. So how much closer do you get as the God of the universe to people? How much more does he have to show you that he wants to be close to you than to physically come to you as a person, stand in front of a lot of people and just out and out say, I want you to be near me. The God of the universe literally just came in flesh and told people, hey, follow me around. He knows you very intimately and he still wants you around. In keeping with this sort of idea of temple, if we go over to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I've got a whole lot of tabs here, but I've got my notes right here. So I know they got the slides. If you don't mind, not Hebrews chapter 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9, Joe. Because the temple was the place to be near God. And so if you, do you mind putting that up there for me? Hebrews, chapter, Hebrews goes in this big long explanation about the temple. This temple that we've been reading about is a shadow. It calls these things shadow glories. And all, all the author of Hebrews means by this are there are things that God has put in your life um, that are meant to be sort of temporary placeholders that show you they're a tangible thing for you to hold on to, to know who God is and his character. And the temple was one of those things because this is the physical sign that God wants to be near you. 
And we get this stuff here where it says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, so the high priest would always come once a year to give the big sacrificial atonement. He was the one person who was allowed to actually enter into God's presence on, on the behalf of God's people and then make a sacrifice for them. So it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that, uh, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with the hands, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore is he the mediator of a new covenant? He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is in, oh, sorry, that's the next verse. Um, but the whole point being that the author is, and please, the next verse goes into a new passage. It was just automatically inserted onto the next slide there. Um, Christ was coming to take that temple, the one that he had just cleansed. Whenever he says, I'm going to destroy it and rebuild it, he's referring obviously to himself. But when the temple... Was it says that whenever Christ died, there was an earthquake and the, the temple shuddered. And when it did, this massive veil, this decorative veil that was meant to protect God's people from the Holy Spirit, tore. So now all of a sudden, God's Spirit was free to just pour out and be amongst His people. And like, it's been a long time. I think maybe like a year or two ago, um, whenever I preached, I, I, I told you all the idea that whenever we read about the image of God in the Old Testament, some people think it's like, it's your ability to reason. It's your this, it's your that, it's your unique soul or all these. There are a whole lot of unique, soulful, acting, spiritual figures in the Bible that are never told to be have the image of God. And if we think it's your unique personality or your ability to reason or do this or that, what do, what do we then think of like babies who don't reason? It seems that if you, if you look at the word for image in Hebrew, and I can't really recall what it is at the top of my head, so I apologize. One of the connotations for it is like an idol. Like a, like, like a carved idol that you let a little god house. And the idea is that you are the image of God because you are made with the capacity to hold his spirit. You're made with the capacity to hold a spiritual being here within you to dwell. And whenever Christ came, the spirit enters into you. So now you are a temple. So where you go, whenever we, whenever we tell you something like wherever you go, that might be the only little bit of Jesus somebody gets. It's quite literal. Because wherever God goes, wherever the holy space goes, things naturally just get holy around it. 
And God is constantly asking people, come nearer, come nearer, come nearer. I want you to come toward the holiness. And you want to recoil, but he's saying, no, come, come into the holiness because you're meant to be restored. You're meant to be made new. I want you, to, I need you to understand this. God actually wants you here in his presence. So much so that he literally just lives inside of those that follow him. You can't get any closer. Because God found a way to get closer than coming in the flesh and literally being able to touch people. He says, okay, now I'm going to live in you. God wants you around. And remember, we get into our our patterns, our, our traps, our death spirals, either because we're just deliberately doing something or because we got distracted and so we've desensitized ourselves little by little over time or or what have you, and we grieve the Spirit and we want to recoil and we, we go off on our own because we want to hide from holiness, because we know we're doing something inherently unholy. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the, 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 the ending here. I'm going to spoil whatever trajectory you're on. It's just going to keep getting worse. It's just going to keep getting worse. And because and, the only way to get better is to come is I'm going to sound really cheeky whenever I say this. So if you're sitting here saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm wandering away from God. I feel hardened or desensitized or something. How do I come back? Because I know I need to come back. But even in this, maybe this particular moment, my worldly heart doesn't feel like coming back. Okay, that's fine. We're fleshly people. And sometimes we don't always feel the way we're supposed to. I'm going to, I'm going to fill you in on a little piece of information here. Jesus didn't die for you so you could feel a particular way. So, you know, just take the word of a guy who gets anxious and feels like he's going to die sitting on a couch. Uh, And it's okay if you don't particularly feel like coming closer. So it sounds kind of cheeky because you're like, how do I wander away from God? Well, my, how do I stop wandering away from God? Well, honestly, stop wandering away from him. And because he's, he's not harsh and cold. He's not big brother. That's just waiting for you to mess up. He's not sitting there with the ruler waiting to smack you on the back of the hand. He understood that that wasn't going to work. And so he came to fulfill the law as a person. And not only did he come as a person to fulfill the law, because a person needed to fulfill the law on our behalf, he came in order that we would understand that he knows what it's like to be a person. He understands this very, very well. Like whenever you're thinking and feeling something you shouldn't, or whenever you've screwed up horribly, he understands exactly what that feels like. He's been there, he's done that. Not the sinning part. But he knows what it's like to live in flesh. Because Hebrews 4, Joe, if you don't mind pulling up Hebrews 4 for me, says that since then, our great high priest, the one we just talked about, who made this great sacrifice for us, who has passed through through the heavens, Jesus, son of, uh, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. And some translations say he is able to empathize with you. He knows you, and he knows the struggles. And here's the fun part. Uh, 
this, and maybe this is a newsflash for some of you all here. Uh, Jesus died and then resurrected 2,000 years ago. Amen. So any mess up you made, period, he already died for. All, literally all of your sins happened after that. So there's not something magical that happened about the sin that you did before you came to faith between the one you did when you came after. He died for them all. And that's rough. That's a big sense of, that's a big place of insecurity for me. Okay. I came to like actual faith whenever I was a preteen. I was like, no, I was a teenager. I just turned 13. And so whenever you're like a very risk-averse, kind of socially awkward 13-year-old, uh, you haven't done a whole lot in that first 13 years of life. So the most substantial sins and screw-ups I've ever made in my life, I've done after I knew I needed his death to cover me. And it's not like the death is somehow significantly insufficient. All of my, he knew them all when he died. And it somehow feels worse when you know him and you, and you grieve him because you love him. And then it feels worse because you've hurt somebody that you love. It's all the same difference. Keep coming closer. Because he loves you and he wants you around. And so whenever we and it's hard sometimes whenever you have these sort of nebulous ideas and concepts of like, hey, okay, so what, what do I actually do? What, is, what does this look like? And the best thing I can tangibly try to grab onto and, and read for you all as far as uh, like an actual bit of like physical something or other that maybe you could do to help in these moments. Because it's – I apologize. I'm super gross right now. It's There's no pretty way of preaching this, so. I'm very glad that camera's not high definition. The people on the stream, it's not pretty. Um, because it's not like your sins just magically go away when you meet Christ. You're still going to struggle. And then you're going to, there's going to be those ones that you can just magically kick. And then there's going to be those ones because the spirit is very kind and gracious and those haven't latched in too deeply. But we all have those things that are like really, really latched into our flesh. Those footholds that may, we might not be able to shake until the day we die. Okay, God knows all of them, and he still forgave them. And if you need more proof, just remember that, you know, David knew who God was, and he literally conspired to have somebody murdered, and then murdered him after stealing and impregnating the person's wife. So, yeah, it's not like a game of who did it worse, but if you need a sense of security, just remember that. that that's helpful sometimes. Um, but a way that you can, whenever you're in those dark moments, that you can physically keep drawing near, even wherever you don't feel like being near, even if you don't feel like it, do it anyways. Um, it's at the end of Thessalonians, Paul gives instructions to them. It's First Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 16. These are his parting instructions. He tells them a few things. The first one is rejoice always. Paul had a particular thing of telling people, just keep worshiping. 
It's very timely that we're saying, yes, I will this morning. He always told people, no matter what's happening, keep rejoicing, keep worshiping. So that kind of requires you to be here. (laughs) But keep worshiping. And then the other one is, verse 17, pray without ceasing. And here's the thing, like, praying can be strange and awkward and hard because it's a discipline that you actually have to, like, really work at. It's not our normal thing to just sit in the quiet. We're very sensory creatures. We're constantly trying to pick up on any little thing around us. That's just what we do by habit. We're like little scientists in the world. We wait for things to happen, and then we listen for them, and it's like a pattern. Or some of us are like squirrels, and we see a shiny thing, and we just are immediately enthralled. I mean, we just, we're not good at just sitting in the silence alone with God. But this just says pray without ceasing. And so here's, it doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be elegant. It doesn't have to be this grand eloquent thing where you prayed for three hours with ashes on crawling on cobblestones or whatever. It could literally just be in the moment leading right up to the point where you're about ready to do that same thing, that same sin that wrecks you, that makes you want to recoil from God. Maybe just take like two seconds, even just two seconds to be in his presence and just say, God, just help. Because even if you just take the two seconds, which is not a whole lot of effort, that's very little, to, to just right before you do that same screw up, to be like, can you help me right now? Just see what happens. Just see what happens. If every time you keep coming back to your same screw up, if you just stop for two seconds and say, God, help me, just see if he helps you every time and see if it starts happening less in your life. If it's really bad, you might need to put up extra bumpers in your life and any of the pastors or the staff people here would would love to help you in that process. But maybe just the first step is instead of recoiling and hiding because that thing feels good or tastes good or is good or whatever, and you just say, God, help me. Instead of recoiling and hiding because the momentary pleasure or whatever it is feels better than the shame you might feel because you know you're about ready to screw up. uh, Understand, it's not shame. Paul writes that love doesn't have to do with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are gone. So if you feel guilt and shame, it might very well be because you're doing something wrong. But understand, God is not guilting you and shaming you. He wants you to come closer. That moment when you're about ready to screw up, that's when you need to come closer. Not whenever you do some ascetic holy man thing where you feel better about yourself and then you come into God's presence. That whole thing didn't work. That's why Jesus is here. The only thing that seems to work to make people holy is God's presence. So you just keep coming into it. Because even that couple seconds of prayer, that couple seconds where you're in God's presence, I would be willing to wager it's going to do something incredible. And so just keep doing it. So just keep worshiping and pray without ceasing. It says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for that is the will of God. Thank you very much. This is necessary. Uh, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good and abstain from every evil. But notice before he tells you to abstain from evil, it's keep worshiping and constantly pray. 
And if you're bad at praying, if you don't feel like praying, pray anyways. And if it's really bad and you just don't have the words to say, go grab somebody and they'll pray for you. It's all the same God. It's all the same presence. It'll be just as powerful. And sometimes better. Because if you don't have the words, Spirit could give them the words. I'm a very deeply anxious person. And sometimes it just happens. You know, whenever you get really anxious, sometimes your body just gets anxious and your head is fine. That's happened like a million times. I've never, I've never gotten anxious about preaching. Today, this morning was the first morning I've ever been super anxious about preaching in my entire life. And, uh... Quite literally, I just said, you know, I was, I'm, I'm coming over here. I said, hey, Keith, can you? I, all, I, all I was asking was, hey, I'm super anxious right now. Pray for me. So I figured it'd be like a prayer for peace. And that's what Keith did. I greatly appreciate it. And then like, because I'm preaching here a message about God wants you around. Now, and then I just shared with you, that's a very big sense of insecurity for me because all my big screw-ups were after I knew him. And all of a sudden, Keith literally just leans over and said, hey, we just sang about the God of Jacob. So I just want you to remember Jacob. The Spirit wanted me to tell you, Jacob screwed, a lot, screwed up a lot and God still used him. I don't know what to do with that, man. <laughs> if when you close your eyes and you imagine your Savior and he's angry at you and doesn't want you around because you screwed up, you don't understand Jesus or the character of God. And this isn't me telling you, hey, it's, it's okay to keep screwing up. We want you to progress in your life, to make progress, to be holy. But there's not like it's a magical formula for doing that. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to feel like I'm sitting here making excuses for you to keep doing that same unrepentant thing over and over and over again. But I am here to help you understand that it doesn't make God love you any less. He knew it from the very beginning. And he's going to know it until the day you die. And the only way to be holier is to come into his presence and to stop recoiling. So just keep coming into his presence, even if you've screwed up, even if you're about to screw up, even if you just screwed up, keep coming into his presence because he knows your heart. He already knew it and he'll keep knowing it. And it didn't stop him from dying in the first place. So why would it stop him from loving you now? Uh... I'm going to attempt to sing response. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, but just remember those instructions from Paul to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. So if you've got something going on in your life, some cyclical habit, some cyclical prayer, or maybe you've just gotten busy and so your heart feels hard or cold and, and you just don't feel intimate or loving with God, that's, that's fine. He knows that. You're not going to bother him. He wants you in his presence anyways. Because the only way to fix that is coming into his presence. Because the closer you get to holiness, the holier you become. Um, there's a really uh, good verse. David references it all the time. It's in John chapter 6. We'll probably get to it a little bit later this year. Uh, do you mind putting that up for me, Joe? It's in, uh, and I can find it too. It's uh, in John chapter 6. It's at verse 63, where it says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But these are some, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm very, you can tell I'm messed up this morning. And I'm just going to trust that the Spirit's going to do something with my garbled up language because I'm normally much more eloquent than this. (laughs) You're not going to be able to find some magical way to suddenly stop sinning and feel more confident in His presence. You just have to be in His presence. And the Spirit is who does that. And the Spirit is in you and will keep doing that. You just have to keep coming to the temple. And all that means is looking to God who lives in you. And not to your outward practices and quick fixes. Because you might be able to do some things to put guardrails around your sins. But they're never going to make you holy enough to where you feel good. You're just going to have to trust that he's got you covered. Even when you don't feel like he's got you covered because you feel like trapped. And by the way, if that's what you're telling yourself, you got to stop doing that because, you know, Jesus died for you and I don't think he likes it when you call his bride trash. So we're going to sing response. Yeah, hopefully. And the verse, aside from those things that you can tangibly take with you, is to keep rejoicing and then to keep praying. Uh, And then we corporately should pray for one another, especially if somebody doesn't feel like praying. Tell that to somebody. Like if you're just bad at praying and you don't feel like praying, tell, tell somebody in your life group and then have them pray with you until you have become sanctified in the way to be able to pray without ceasing. Uh, But the verse I'm going to leave you with, and so hopefully you can keep remembering this when you go throughout the week, is in Romans. And Paul just tells them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you got to, if you're stuck and you're keeping God at arm's length, or if you're afraid of him or whatever, the only way that's going to get better is to come closer to him rather than further. He loves you. He doesn't condemn you. Whatever you've done or you're doing or you will do, he already knew and he died anyways because he knew what was in your heart. And he died anyways. So we're going to keep that in mind whenever we uh, sing this morning. If you all want to stand while I get situated.